Well, hey guys, welcome to the online weekend experience. My name is Garrett. I'm a resident here within our creative arts ministry and so glad that you guys decided to join us online. And hey, it's Christmas season. We've been celebrating Christmas for the past couple of weeks. Specifically, we've been celebrating this thing called Advent. So each weekend as we walk up to Christmas, which is gonna be next week, hopefully you guys join us for some services. But what we've been doing is we've been looking at specific aspects of the Christmas season. A couple weeks ago, Adam talked about, Pastor Adam talked about hope. We talk about hope in the time of Christmas. And then last week, Pastor Jonathan looked and he was talking about peace, talking about peace in the time of Christmas. I want to spend some time though today talking to you guys about joy in the midst of the Christmas season, in the midst of the Christmas Advent. And we read this in Luke 2, where the angels come to this group of shepherds and say this, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Now that passage is something that we can hear all the time around the Christmas season. You think Charlie Brown and Linus getting up on the stage and sharing and stuff like that. And we think about this idea of joy in the midst of that. It can be kind of numb to us at this point. You go to Hobby Lobby, you see joy signs. You go to grandma's house and there's a million things that say joy, joy, joy. And we can kind of just get used to it. It's like the John 3:16 of Christmas where all you hear about is joy. But I think there's something extremely profound about the joy to be found in the Christmas season. And there's this old German theologian from the 1500s. Some of you guys might know him. His name is Martin Luther. And I think he really does a great job of summing up what the profound nature of joy is in the season of Christmas. He writes and he says this, that the word gospel, as said above during Advent, means a good, joyful message, which is the proclamation of a new covenant with Christ. What does this gospel say? Listen, he says. I bring you good, no good news of great joy. He says, my gospel speaks of great joy. Where is it? Listen again. There is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Martin Luther writes, he says, see here what the gospel is, namely a joyful sermon about Christ our savior. Whoever preaches him rightly preaches the gospel and in so doing pure joy. And that's what we celebrate, that because of Christmas, because Jesus, God incarnate, came to be with us, we can have pure joy. And what we know about pure joy is that it cannot be taken away from us. That no matter whether it's good times or bad times, and sadness and grief and hurt and pain, and even in the best of times, joy cannot be taken from us. And the only place where we find this pure joy is in Jesus alone. We don't find it in our homes. We don't find it in family. We don't find it in different things. But in Christ alone, we can have this pure joy. And what we celebrate at Christmas, the reason this is such a great big deal, is that at the sound of a baby's cry 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, we found hope, hope in a God who has come to save us. We found peace. We found this peace that outlasts us, that comforts us in our time of need, but ultimately we have this joy. We can live our lives no matter what happens to us here on this earth. We have joy because there's a God who is with us. There's a God who's come near. And for that, we're able to celebrate and have joy. So glad that you guys have decided to join us. We're gonna continue in our series through more and more on what it means to love and follow Christ every day more and more. So would you guys check this out?
Hey guys, welcome. So glad you're joining us online this weekend. I'm Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at the Norton Camps of Grace Church. And uh, Merry Christmas, right? We're a week out from Christmas. And so hopefully you're getting everything ready. Uh, hopefully you got all your gifts bought. You're looking forward to uh, getting together with family, friends over Christmas. We'd love the opportunity to get together with you. Uh, Christmas Eve, 23rd and 24th, we have services. You can go online and check this out. But uh, two services on the 23rd, that is going to be Saturday evening. And then we have four services on Sunday evening, Christmas Eve. And so I'd love the chance to meet you. Come join us. Uh, some of you, introduce yourself. I'd love to meet you Christmas Eve. And we're going to have a good time just celebrating Jesus together. Can I push forward in this conversation that we're having? If you haven't been with us, you can go back and check the other conversations. It's all about more and more. Uh, we're becoming more and more. You're becoming more and more. I'm becoming more and more of something. That means we're becoming less and less of something else. That's kind of the way it works, right? You're becoming more and more generous, less and less stingy. You fill in the blanks. More and more joy-filled. That means less and less you know, grumpy, whatever the case may be. For a guy named John the Baptizer, John 3, his deal was this. He's like, I want to become more of Jesus, less of me. I love that, right? I said this a couple weeks ago that what I want for my wife for Christmas this year, among other things, is that she gets this year more of Jesus, less of Dan. Like, like she's going to have a great year if she can get more of Jesus, less of Dan. And so that was it, John the Baptizer. Actually, a disciple of Jesus is somebody who loves and follows Jesus more and more. That's what a disciple is. And so that led to three fundamental questions, foundational questions we've been asking. Am I loving Jesus more and more? So we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Uh, am I loving Jesus or do I just love what he does for me, the blessings and the benefits that he gives to me? Uh, am I loving Jesus more than these? Uh, Jesus asked Peter that. And so I got to say, if, when I love Jesus most, I'm going to love what matters more. We said that. You check it out. And then when I play the game, I love you more. Jesus always wins. I love you more. And the more I realize his love for me, the more I love him. And it just goes on and on and on. Which led us to last weekend by loving who Jesus loves more and more. Like, is his love for me my identity? Uh, could I literally give myself the same nickname? Hey, I'm the disciple Jesus loves. I don't understand it. Don't believe it. But it's like mind-blowing. And then am I loving others more and more the way Jesus loves them? And am I loving more and more the same people Jesus loves? Which leads us to our fundamental question today, am I living for what Jesus lives for more and more? Uh, built in here is we're all living for something. I don't know if you think about this much, but the question is, what am I living for? And you can begin to get the answer to that just by simply stopping and say, what is it that gets you up in the morning? What do you daydream about? What is it that stirs your passions? What is it that brings you more and more joy and fulfillment and satisfaction? Like, what are you living for? The question is, I'm living for something. For a disciple of Jesus, am I living for what Jesus lives for more and more? And so it kind of begs the question, then how do I know what Jesus lived for? And, and I think that's the power of the message of Christmas. The power of the message of Christmas is all about this Jesus and what it was that his story is all about. And when I think about the story of Christmas, I think about one of my favorite Christmas stories. Uh, it's one that was originally told, as I understand it, by, um, by a man of Christmas time who was talking about a man and his family, uh, the man that 
the story's about was not a bad man. He was a kind and decent man. And the story goes like this. He was mostly even a good man. He was generous to his family, upright in his dealings. He just didn't believe in all the incarnation stuff uh, that the church has proclaimed at Christmas. Didn't make sense to him. He was too honest to pretend it did. He just couldn't swallow the Jesus story, the God coming to earth as a man. So he told his wife on the night of Christmas Eve services, I'm sorry to distress you, but I'm not going with you to church this evening, Christmas Eve. I don't want to feel like a hypocrite. He said, I'd rather, much rather stay at home. But he said to them, I'll wait up for you. So he stayed and they went to their Christmas Eve service. Shortly after the family drove away in the car, snow began to fall. He went to the window to watch the flurries getting heavier and heavier, and then went back to his fireside chair and began to read his newspaper. Minutes later, he started to hear a thud, then another, then another, sort of a thump or a thud. At first, he thought somebody's throwing snowballs at his living room window, but he went to the front door to investigate, and he found that a flock of birds huddled miserably in the snow. They'd been caught in the snowstorm. In a desperate search for shelter, they tried to fly through his large landscape window. He couldn't let the poor creatures lie there and freeze, so he remembered the barn where the children stabled their pony. That would provide them warm shelter if he could just direct the birds to it. Quickly, he got his coat and boots, and he tramped through the deepening snow to the barn, opened the barn doors wide, turned on the light, the birds didn't come in. He figured food would entice them, so he hurried back to the house, and he fetched some food and sprinkled it so to make a trail to the yellow-lighted wide open door of the stable, but to his dismay, the birds ignored the breadcrumbs. They continued to flap around helplessly in the snow. He tried catching them, he tried shooing them, tried anything, waving his arms at them. Instead, he scattered them in every direction except into the warm, lighted barn. He realized they were afraid of him. To them, he reasoned, I'm strange, I'm a terrifying creature. If only I could think of some way to let them know that they can trust me. That I'm not trying to hurt them, but I really want to help them. But how? The old farmer thought. Because any move he made tended to frighten the birds and confuse them. They just would not follow him. They would not be led or shooed because they feared him. And then he thought to himself, if only I could be a bird and mingle with them and speak their language and I could tell them not to be afraid, then I could show them the way to safe, warm, the safe, warm barn. But I would have to be one of them so they could see and hear and understand. At that moment, the church bells rang, the story says. The sound reached his ears above the sounds of the wind and he stood there listening to the bells pealing the glad tidings of Christmas and he sank to his knees in the snow because he realized that the power of Christmas is found in a story like that. And it's very much that message that inspired John's version of the Christmas story. Did you know John had a version of the Christmas story? His version is very much different than the other gospel writers. It's found in John 1. Look at it with me. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Uh, the Greek's understanding of the Word was the originator of things, the force that originated everything. In the beginning was something originated, that was God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So the Word is God. But then he says this, this is John's Christmas story, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's stop for a minute. Word was with God, Word was God, and the Word became flesh. 
This is the beauty and the power of Christmas. Who's this talking about? This is Christmas. This is talking about Jesus. Jesus is the Word. The Word is God. Jesus is the Word. He is God became flesh. Jesus is literally God in the flesh. This is what incarnation means. This is the incarnation. John goes right by the whole Mary and Joseph and wise men and shepherds and stars and inns, and he gets right to the meat of the story. The word God became flesh. And he says, that's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is all about God coming in and he moved in and dwelt among us. And when we watch Jesus, we're watching God with skin on. In fact, remember, he wrote this book 60 years after the accounts in the book of John. And he says this in this book, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, right? We saw the word became flesh, which we have looked at, our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it, testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Here's the point. We can know what Jesus lived for because of Christmas. We can know what Jesus lived for because the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. When Jesus was born, God stepped onto this stage uh, as a human being. I don't know if you thought about that or not. That Christmas is about the one who had no beginning becoming a baby. That Christmas is about the one who is infinite becoming an infant. That Christmas is about the maker of everything lying in a manger. That Christmas is about the deity being in diapers. And for our purposes today, for what I want to talk about today, we can look at the life of Jesus lived out and make some observations. And if I'm going to live for more and more what Jesus lived for, I need to begin with an understanding of what Jesus lived for. Can I suggest three things today? Three things. The first is found in our text in John chapter 1. Can we just say, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who himself is God and is in closest relationship with the Father has, say this out loud with me, has what made him known. The Greek word is where we get the word exegete from. Uh, he's made him known. He has revealed him to us. I need to explain this word just for a minute because I think there's something important here. I wasn't gonna, but then I came back to it because I'm like, I want you to know this. That when it comes to this word, the Greek word where we get has made him known is where we get the word, is from the word exegete. Exegete is the opposite of eisegete. A lot of preachers use this term. To exegete a passage of Scripture is simply to let the passage speak for itself. I'm not going to come to it with presupposed opinions. I'm going to just draw out of it its meaning. So what is it saying? And then I'm going to understand it, interpret it. To eisegete something here is to come at a passage of Scripture with my opinions, and then I try to make it fit my opinions. What... John is saying, this is important, is that Jesus is the perfect explanation or exegete of God. Why is that important? Because it can be really easy, are you with me, to eisegete God. That it can be easy to read into what we think about God, our opinion of God, versus who God really is. 
For some of you, that's exactly where you're at, maybe. Like somebody told you something about God, so you have this opinion about God. Instead of an exegete, you've eisegeted him. So maybe you look at God like this big holy Santa Claus. Like, you better be careful, you better watch out. You know, he's watching, good, bad, right? Uh, for some of you, you have this like drill sergeant in the sky kind of opinion of God. You're like, he's just waiting to yell at me and to snuff me out. For others of you, he's this like uh, big buddy in the sky. He's my friend, but he's just like me, right? Uh, there's a New Testament professor that gave a test to his students about God. And he said what was interesting is this, when he asked people what they thought God was like, the majority of the answers were that God is just like me. So what we do is we eisegete onto God what we think he's like based on what we are. We create a God in our own image. When Jesus came, he explained perfectly God. He is the perfect explanation of God. He lived to make Jesus make sense to the world. Jesus, what did he live for? To make God make sense to us. That's what he lived for. Jesus lived to make God make sense to you and I. I love the way the writer of Hebrews says it. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets. You know this, right? Many times, various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also has made the universe. The Son, who's that? I hear you. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That Jesus, when he lived among us, literally turned the lights bright on who God really is. Not who we think he is, not who we wanted him to be, but who he really is. In a world where the understanding of God has been darkened. So what is he like? Well, John explained when he went on further. The word became flesh. That's his Christmas story. Made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, right? Turn the lights bright on the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of what? Grace and truth. Jesus is the perfect explanation of God. He lives to make God make sense to us. And the way he shows up is he's full of grace and truth. When God became flesh, the Christmas story, and lived among people, he ended up surprising most. When the word became flesh in the person of Jesus... He surprised many. Do you remember he invited John and his brother and, and his fellow fishermen to follow him? And when God showed up in the flesh and they began to follow him, he began to do things that were surprising. Do you remember? Uh, around Luke chapter 5, I mean, he, he immediately goes and he touches a leper. That would have been unheard of. He, he touches the unlovely. He helps the helpless. Uh, he is somebody who hung around the harassed. He healed the broken. He cried with the grieving. He made time for the least. But he never compromised the truth that Jesus, God in the flesh, was kind, full of grace, and convicted, full of truth. And this is fascinating to me. Because the people you think should have been afraid of him ended up being friends with him. And the ones that you thought would be friends with him ended up killing him. Do you know that? 
This is interesting to me. The people who had eisegeted God in their mind and they thought, I should be afraid of him because of my awful life, my sin, my guilt. They eisegeted God. He's waiting to snuff me out. When God came in the flesh, they became friends with him. On the other hand, there were religious people, pious people, who had eisegeted God and made God a figment of their legalistic religious piety. And when they met God in the flesh, Jesus, they couldn't stand him. They ended up killing him. That's interesting to me. Did Jesus just like sinful people better? No. They were just the one whose sin was exposed by the light of his truth. And when the light of his truth, he never compromises on truth. God never, we have eisegeted a God that has no truth. That is not true. He never compromised on truth. But when the light of God's truth reveals our sin, it's the healing of his grace that comes in. The religious people just kept their sickness and their sin and failed in a darkness behind their religion and their morality. So they never opened themselves up to the need for the healing of his grace. You see how that works. Jesus lived to make God make sense to us to turn the lights on about who God really is. He lived, Jesus lived to make God make sense. Which reminds me of something else. I think this secret's found in the Christmas story. Do you remember what the angel announced to Joseph when he told him your fiance is gonna have a baby? Do you remember? After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. Now just think about the story. Uh, your fiance's pregnant. Well, how'd she get pregnant? Uh, this is going to be conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? He said, don't be afraid. Take her as your wife. And his life is going to get difficult because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus, Christmas story. Why? Because he will, say it with me, save his people from their, their sins. Basically saying this baby was going to be the one to save his people from their sins. And it is that mission, that identity spoken before he was even born, before that first Christmas, it is that identity that would mark the life of Jesus. Do you know that? It's the very thing that many times got him into trouble. In fact, this is the thing that got him into trouble. Do you know that it got him into trouble so much that it earned Jesus a nickname? And do you know what that nickname was? That Jesus was a what? Do you know it? A friend of sinners. That he was a friend of sinners. It reminds me of a story in Luke 19. The story is Jesus is passing through Jericho. And the crowds hear that Jesus is coming. And one particular person in the book of Luke chapter 19 hears that he's coming. His name is Zacchaeus. And here's what the story tells us about Zacchaeus. He was the chief of tax collectors. He was an extremely wealthy man. And, and this chief of tax collectors was somebody who would have been a Jew like his fellow Jews waiting for the promised Messiah. But in the meantime, what Zacchaeus did was he sold himself out to the Roman government. And he wasn't just a tax collector, he was the chief. And he had become wealthy on the backs of his own countrymen. 
But something becomes very evident. Zacchaeus' name means righteous, and it becomes very evident quickly he didn't live up to his name because he had cheated people. He had, he had taken more than was his due, all in the name of working for the Roman government. But what becomes very evident on reading the story is all the money in the world, all of that couldn't buy him satisfaction. There's still a hollowness. There's still a desperation because he hears Jesus is coming to town. Luke 19, check me on this. And the crowds begin to gather. And one of the things about Zacchaeus that if you didn't know the story is true and it says it about him is he was a short dude. And so the crowds are everywhere. And I imagine even with people everywhere that he felt very alone because I bet he was not that well liked. And he couldn't see. You ever been in a crowd and can't see? He's short. And so what it says he does, he does something that many men wouldn't have done. He, he hikes up his robe and he runs, gets to a tree, namely a sycamore tree, and he climbs the tree because he's waiting, just wanting to see Jesus. You get the sense this guy's desperate. You get the sense that even though he's wealthy, even though he has this position, that he's hollow. You, you get the sense that he's curious that he's restless. I know some of you watching this are restless and curious and desperate. You're so desperate that maybe you feel like you're up a tree. Zacchaeus is up a tree. And, and the story goes that up in this tree, when Jesus finally comes into town, he reaches the spot. Like literally it says that. What What spot? He reaches the spot underneath of the tree where the chief tax collector is perched. And it says when he reached the spot, Jesus looked up and he said, and I'll read right from my Bible, Zacchaeus, he calls him by name. When God became flesh, he looked in the tree and he called him by name. He says, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. Like God was not in the flesh, was not disinterested, was not disengaged, but he looked in the tree, in the eyes of this tax collector, in the eyes of this guy who had robbed, we're going to find out later, cheated people, in the eyes of this guy who was hopeless and helpless and distressed and disillusioned, he was up a tree, and he looks at him, can you imagine? And I don't think it was like the little kid songs, Zacchaeus, you come down, I don't think it was that way. I honestly don't. I think it's like Zacchaeus. Isn't there something about your name? Zacchaeus, come down. Come down out of that tree. And the reason I think that is because Zacchaeus came down. It says he came down and welcomed Jesus gladly. That got Jesus in trouble. When you read the story, you'll see this. It literally says in Luke 19, verse 7, all the people saw Jesus going to his house and they began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of sinners. He's a friend of sinners. It was taboo to go to a tax collector's house, and Jesus is going right into the taboo. What's interesting is Jesus shows us that God's an inviting God. I got to think to myself that Zacchaeus must have been waiting for him to be an inviting God, to, to, to wag his finger, and yet he invites him. Zacchaeus then stands up and says, Lord, like a transformation happens when he encounters Jesus. He says, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor, and, and those people I've cheated, I'm going to pay them back four times as much. 
And then Jesus says something to him. He says, today salvation has come to your house, Zacchaeus, because you too are son of Abraham. And then Jesus says this, for the son of man, who is that? Jesus has come to what? Seek and save the lost. What did Jesus live for? What does he live for? What drove him? What was his ambition? What was his passion? You gotta write it this way. Jesus lived to seek and to save the lost. He was a friend of sinners. He was a guest of sinners. He invited sinners. How in the world, do you ever think about this? How in the world could he say to Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house today? You ever think about this? How could he say that? Jesus could only say to the man who found himself up a tree, Zacchaeus is up a tree, up a tree of hopelessness, up a tree of guilt, loneliness, disillusionment. Jesus looked at the man in the tree and he can say to the man who's up a tree, he literally, his life has landed him up a tree. Salvation has come to your house because Jesus knew in a few days that he would climb his tree so Zacchaeus wouldn't have to. Guys, that's the gospel. Jesus didn't just live to seek and save the lost, but Jesus died to save the lost he was seeking. Some of you are up a tree. You're watching this. I just want to take a minute. You're up a tree. Up a tree of your guilt, regret. You find yourself a tree. You're curious about Jesus, but you're not sure maybe God's too busy. When God became flesh, he looks up the tree and he's looking up at you today. He, he reached the spot. For some reason, you're watching this. And he's standing under the tree that you find yourself in. And he's calling your name. Bob. Fred. George. Sally, Samantha, you fill in the blank. And he's inviting, not indicting. That's the gospel. And, and, and the reason he can invite us is because he is God, the word become flesh, who would climb the tree for those that he's seeking to save so that they wouldn't have to live in the tree of their regret in the tree of their sin, in the tree of their guilt, in the tree of their desperation, in the tree of their hopelessness. You know the story, don't you? They took Jesus and they nailed him to that tree. They buried him and it felt like just as this thing was ready to get off the ground, it came to a halt. Jesus came and said, I'm going to be a king and I'm going to set up my kingdom and it felt like that was over. Jesus said in another occasion, I'm going to build my church and hell can't stop it. It felt like, it felt like all hell had broken loose and stopped it. But if you know the rest of the story, what's the rest of the story? They buried him in that tomb and what, three days later, he what, boop, he rose again. That Jesus didn't just live, but he is living. And so what is he living for? Well, among other things, and I think there's many things we could do here, he's living to do exactly what he told him to do. That before he died, he said this, he says, I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I will, say it out loud, build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. Here's what I want you to write down. Jesus lives today building his church on earth. That, that's what he's doing. Jesus' church is not bricks and mortar this Christmas. It's not services and organizations. Churches certainly meet in 
buildings of bricks and mortar. Churches certainly have services and organization, but the church is made up of people who have attached their life to Jesus. The word become flesh. In faith, they believe that Jesus is the word become flesh, that he is God in the flesh. They believe that they are the lost ones that Jesus has been seeking. They believe that not only has he been seeking them, but he climbed his tree to save them from their tree. They believe that he is alive today. They believe that so much that they've attached their life to him. They love him and follow him more and more. And they love who he loves more and more. And guess what? They, his church, is made up of his disciples who live, you ready? For what he lives for more and more. So John, in 1 John, says, we know we've come to know him if we what? Keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, doesn't do what he commands is a what? Liar. Whoever, let's, let's say it this way. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't do what he commands, is not telling the truth. And the truth is not in that person. But if anybody obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. We talked about this. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. What's the point here? The point is this, if you're taking notes, I know what Jesus lived for because he is the word become flesh. So how do I live for what Jesus lived for? I live for what Jesus lived for by putting flesh to the word. I think that's the point. It's the word of God. It's the word of God that points to the God who became flesh. The Bible is all about Jesus. Can I say something important? So we listen to the Bible. You listen to people preach about the Bible. You listen to the Bible on the way to work. You read the Bible. You study the Bible. You memorize the Bible. Not simply to become more and more knowledgeable about the Bible, but to become more and more like the one the Bible is all about, namely Jesus. Living for what Jesus lives for is a matter of me following Jesus by putting flesh to the word. How about this? Jesus had a half-brother. like how he says it. Don't merely listen to the word, right? Oh, man, Pastor, that was a great sermon. Don't just, you're deceiving yourself. Say it with me out loud. Do what it says. Put flesh to the word. Anyone who listens to the word doesn't do it it's like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like, right? But whoever looks intently into the perfect law gives freedom and confer continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they'll be blessed in what they do. Why do I look in the mirror? Well, the more I look in the mirror, the more I see what needs to, I need to eliminate that or I need to, I don't look at it to comb my hair. Okay, that's obvious, but I look and man, that's out of whack, and I need to woo, I don't things are crazy, right? I need to shave there, whatever. Here's the deal. He's saying the more I look in this mirror, you got your mirror? The more I look in it, the more this book is about Jesus. 
the more I look in this mirror, the more I see the Jesus I long to become more and more. And the more and more I see him, the more I learn how to eliminate the me that keeps getting in the way of Jesus showing up in my life. So where I look, it points me to Jesus. And, and, I, and here's the deal. The more I see Jesus, the more that's what I want to put flesh to that. I want that to show up. And the more I see in me that is out of line with, not the attitude of, not the ambitions of, not the perception of Jesus, I want to eliminate. See, that's what it means to live for what Jesus lived for. I'm going to put flesh to the word. Why? Because the word became flesh. Which leads to the question, am I living for what Jesus lives for more and more? Am I putting flesh to the word? Can I ask you several questions? Does my life make Jesus make sense? You see, it's not like I know these facts about the Bible. I drew these charts about the Bible. I win this game of Bible trivia. That's not what it's about. The question is, when people see my life, do they see Jesus? Not an eisegetic version of Jesus. Well, I think Jesus would do this, but you see, the only way I'm going to give an exegetic version is to go to the word that talks about the word became flesh. And this mirror tells me what I need to fix and what I need to rearrange and what I need to confess and what I need to eliminate and what I need to let go of and what I need to embrace so that more of Jesus shows up, less of me. How about this? Am I seeking lost people and pointing them to the one who can save them? Who are the lost people in your life that are up a tree? Up a tree of guilt, pride, disillusionment. That when you reach the spot, you know the spot, you look and you point them to the one who can save them because he hung on his tree. Who are those people in your life? If you're a follower of Jesus, am I living for what Jesus... Well, that's... People who are good at that do that. I don't think so. Whoever claims to be in him must live as Jesus lived. That's what it says. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he says, Zacchaeus, who's, who's that for you? Who's that for you? Don? Fred? Sally? Who is it? He came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, if you're a follower of Christ, who are the three people that you're passionately praying for? Can I just challenge you some? Invite them to come to our Christmas Eve service with you. Hey, how about this? Am I living for what Jesus lives for more and more? Am I helping build his church? Well, I'm not really a church guy. I don't really like the church. I'm disenfranchised with the church. He's building his church. How's he doing it? By making disciples who make disciples. I'm a follower of Christ, I gotta ask this, am I participating? Am I helping Jesus build his church? That's what he's doing by making disciples. If I'm not making, I'm not living for what he's living for. He's building his church. See, I gotta ask myself, who am I inviting to love and follow Jesus more and more as I love and follow Jesus more and more? You see, I gotta ask myself, am I living for what Jesus lives for more and more? Well, how do I know that I'm living for what Jesus lives for more and more? I got to think John thought back to when Jesus prayed. 
right before they crucified him. What did he say? I have brought you what? Glory on earth. He's talking to the Father. By finishing the work you gave me to do. He's like, the whole purpose of what I've lived for is to bring God glory. Down in verse 17, 18, he says, Now sanctify them, set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. So the way that he's going to sanctify them is put flesh to the word. As you sent me, he's saying to the Father, into the world, I have sent them into the world. Can I just tell you something? And then I want to pray with you. Here's the deal. You see, when I come to the Bible and I read it like this manual to manage my life so that I can somehow feel good about how good I'm doing, I'm misreading it. It's like a code book, a rule book. This book is more like a mission manual for how you and I can live on this earth as Jesus did. For the things that drove Jesus, with the ambitions and attitudes that drove Jesus. And do you know how we'll know we're doing that? Not by the opinions and the things we rally, but we'll know it when we bring glory to God with our life. Kind of like that first Christmas. When Jesus came, they said, glory to who in the highest? Glory to God in the highest. Can you imagine if that were to be said about lives of those who are loving and following Jesus more and more, not like, wow, look how much they know. Wow, look at how dedicated they are. Wow, look at how invested they are. Can you imagine if at the end of it they said, wow, glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth, good news, goodwill to all men found in the story of Jesus, the word become flesh. Father, I pray you would help us to consider this, to apply this. Some are watching that are up a tree, and you're standing at the base of it today, and they've never said yes to Jesus. And some of you watching, you've watched clear to the end. You're praying with me. You can right now say yes to the Jesus who's calling your name. He loves you. Say, God, I believe you love me. And that Jesus, you hung on that tree for me. And I'm saying yes to you as the only one who can save me. And I want to follow you the rest of my life. And it's time for you today to get out of your tree because he hung on his tree. Father, for those who've trusted Christ, I pray that you'd help us to live making Jesus make sense. Live seeing the people who are stuck in their tree and pointing them to the one who hung on his. Live with a desire to participate in this church that Jesus is building by making disciples who make disciples. I pray this in Jesus' precious name.